IDRC CRDI Did you know that some air bubbles in water are so small that they remain suspended in the water column, never floating up to the surface? That is until they implode and unleash highly reactive free radicals in every direction. Turns out these bubbles might be quite useful for disinfecting water. Um, I think if we find technology that reduces bacteria in the water column while the fish are in the water, that would be a success, uh, especially if we could get more than a thousand or ten thousand fold reduction in bacterial counts. Well, disinfecting the water in an aquaculture system is one way to deal with bacterial outbreaks. Radar about to be jammed. Another might be the old wartime trick of jamming the communications. Of the pathogens, that is, not the fish. The idea is by quenching the signal molecules, all this behavior that somehow led to, to the pathogenicity of that bacterial pathogen can somehow be inhibited. Or maybe the solution to controlling pathogenic bacteria in aquaculture systems lies in a naturally occurring protein found in most animals. It's their structure that, that gives them their activity. It binds directly to the membrane on the outside of the bacteria and punches holes in it so that the bacteria leaks out its internal contents and dies. I'm Evelyn Barricky. And I'm Justin Kemp, and this is Innovating Alternatives, a podcast about AMR and the researchers around the globe who are working to reduce it. In this episode, we meet research teams adopting diverse approaches to tackle bacterial pathogens in aquaculture. Ever heard of the United Nations? Oh, you mean the organization founded post-Second World War in 1945 to essentially prevent future wars? The one that developed the UN Charter, laying out the organization's objectives, including maintaining international peace and security, protecting human rights, delivering humanitarian aid, promoting sustainable development, and upholding international law? That United Nations? That's the one. So as part of the larger UN family, there are also several specialized agencies, including the FAO, the Food and Agricultural Organization. Right. They lead international efforts to achieve food security for all. They also have an active program on antimicrobial resistance, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, You aren't mistaken, but that's not why I bring them up. Having 190 global members means that you're in a unique position to collect a lot of data. So if you're interested in global scale questions like, say, what animals do we humans prefer to eat? Their databases are a great place to go digging. So what animals do we like to eat? Well, what seems like a fairly simple question becomes a lot more complex the more you dig into it. Let's start with a simple answer. We eat considerably more animals with lungs compared to those with gills. Hmm. I've uh, never really thought of it like that. It's actually quite a useful distinction, this above water, below water thing. The way we go about getting nutrition from terrestrial as opposed to aquatic animals has some unique differences. So total terrestrial animal production in 2019 was in the region of 1.3 billion tonnes of animal products. We're not just talking meat, but also eggs, milk and even honey. By contrast, we produced only 178 million tons from aquatic animals. Okay, so we could say that the animal component of our food system is heavily skewed towards terrestrial production. Exactly, and your use of the word production is key here. We rely almost entirely on animal husbandry, a technical term for farming domestic animals, basically, to create the animal products we eat. I'm sure you know what these animals are. I mean, any children's barnyard storybook should feature most of the key characters. Sure, I mean, cows, pigs, chickens, sheep... Exactly, those four animals account for 94% of all the terrestrial animal products we eat. Add goats and buffalo, and you're well over 98%. That's just six species that provide virtually all the animal products grown on land today. And it's been that way for a long time. We've relied on these domesticated animals for literally thousands of years. Okay, so that's what's happening above the water. What about under the water? You mentioned some unique differences. Yeah, so under the water, that's what we call aquaculture, the farming of aquatic organisms. The one thing that really differentiates aquaculture is the number of species farmed. So about 60 years ago, in in the early 1960s, the FAO collected aquaculture production data for 86 groups in total. So back then, it took 33 species to get to the same 98% level of production reached by just six terrestrial species. Right, so we farm a much bigger diversity of animals underwater. 
Exactly. The second story is that aquaculture has grown rapidly in the last 60 years, both in terms of the diversity of animals being farmed and the total production output. Although the origins of aquaculture go way back, I mean the first texts on the subject appeared in China around 500 BC, the modern growth of the industry has been, I mean, remarkable. What sort of growth are we talking about here? Well, to put it into perspective, between 1960 and 2019, the production of terrestrial animal products increased from around 430 million tons to the 1.3 billion tons today. That's a 204% increase. Human population growth over the same period was 150%. Food animal production was keeping up with human population growth. And some change, of course. I'm guessing that spare change means that uh, we eat more meat per capita than we did in 1961. Yeah, but that's a whole other can of worms. Okay, so back to aquaculture. Growth between 1960 and 2018, a whopping 5,500% increase. And the number of species has also increased. We're up to almost 400 now. Okay, so if I'm thinking of aquaculture in 1961 as a small basket of groceries at the supermarket, then aquaculture today is like a car-sized trolley carrying one of everything in the store. Pretty much. This growth of aquaculture is often referred to as the Blue Revolution. But this rapid growth, both in terms of total production and the expansion of species diversity, has not come without costs. And unfortunately, the emergence of antimicrobial resistance, or AMR, is one of them. Hang on, that's a bit of a jump. What's uh, the exact causal link or mechanism between production growth and AMR? Well, any aquaculture production happens along a continuum, from extensive farming on one end, through to intensive farming on the other. On the extensive end of the scale, I'm guessing you might have a farmer who, uh, say, adds some fish to a natural pond and returns at some point to harvest whatever has survived and grown. On the other extreme, a highly intensive system might involve a farming having to provide all the necessities of life to his fish. Exactly, a recirculating aquaculture system, or RAS as it is sometimes known, would be an example of the latter. By using a RAS, the farmer provides all the needs of the organism he is growing, including water treatment systems, supplemental oxygen, all their food, lighting and heat control, disinfection system. It's basically like a life support system for fish. And the link with AMR? Yes, uh, about that. So a lot of the growth in aquaculture production has been due to increased intensification of production. Not just RAS systems, but also those one rung down the intensity scale, so to speak, like intensive cage and pond culture. Intensification increases animal density and can negatively impact water quality. Crowded conditions and suboptimal water quality equals physiological stress and impaired immune function, which ultimately favors disease emergence. And what options do farmers have to turn to in the face of disease outbreak and economic loss? Now I'm with you, antibiotics. And from the first episode of this series, we know that antibiotics, if used inappropriately, provide the selective pressures that favor the emergence of antimicrobial resistant bacteria. Exactly. But aquaculture also has some additional unique quirks that facilitate AMR emergence and create distinct challenges for addressing this emergence. I've got an inkling that the species diversity might have something to do with this. Yeah, aquaculture is very much an evolving food production system. Hundreds of species across diverse culture systems of a broad geographic range. In many instances, we're still figuring out the optimal way to farm many of these organisms. While we figure it out, the potential for um, less than ideal culture conditions is high and that invites diseased outbreaks. Also, when they occur, we don't necessarily have the knowledge and tools to diagnose and treat emerging disease threats. So we're very much on a steep learning curve. Okay, what else? There are a whole host of factors, but here's the, how should we say, executive summary of some of the main ones. Okay, so number one, most aquaculture production occurs in subtropical and tropical regions. These are the same regions that are prone to rapid and severe disease outbreaks. Number two, there are no antibiotics specifically for aquaculture, so we borrow those used for humans and livestock, some of which are critically important to human medicine. Number three, now that we have an antibiotic to use, we generally incorporate it into feed and administer it metaphylatically. That's a big word meaning that if some fish are showing signs of disease, everyone gets treated. Unfortunately, fish don't metabolize antibiotics very well, and keeping track of what's happening with food consumption underwater is difficult. So, number four, a large proportion of the antibiotics and the metabolites land up in the aquatic environment, whose microbiome, due to its large variety of mobile genetic elements, is particularly prone to genetic exchange and recombination. The term genetic reactors have been used to describe aquaculture systems in this context. Add to this the fact that aquaculture systems are often directly linked to aquatic ecosystems, which are themselves a sink for antibiotics produced and used on land, and you get an idea of the scope of the issue. Oh, and five, the regulatory framework around antibiotic use, think monitoring and enforcement, is limited in many of the countries that are major producers. Wow, that's uh, quite the laundry list of challenges. So how do you even go about finding a solution? 
Well, I don't think there's one single solution that will just instantly solve AMR. It's a kind of problem that needs action on multiple fronts to start moving the situation into a more favorable direction. So the way I see it, disease is obviously a major driver, so interventions that reduce disease can directly impact antibiotic use. I'm thinking improve biosecurity on farms to limit disease spread, improve veterinary support in the farm of diagnostics and treatment plans, maybe also improved farm management to limit the conditions that can lead to outbreaks in the first place. Exactly, and on the other side of the coin is trying to directly manage the availability and use of antibiotics. There's a bit of a stick and carrot thing going on here. So when we talk about the stick, we're talking about regulation, top-down legislation governing who can buy what antibiotics and when and how they can use them. The rules are all good and well, assuming they can be enforced, of course, and that requires strong institutions and funding. On the other side, the carrots, so to speak, are audited certification schemes. If certification schemes have limits on antibiotic use, and having certification means farmers can access new and lucrative local and export markets, then they directly drive how animals are farmed. Somewhere in the middle is the carrot-shaped stick that is import legislation. Things like monitoring antibiotic residues at the point of import. Having a valuable shipment of shrimp turned away from a receiving country can quickly influence behavior in the country of origin. Okay, but despite the best intentions to reduce disease outbreaks, they do obviously still happen. So if the idea is to limit antibiotic use, what alternatives do farmers have to control disease? Well, alternatives. Antibiotic alternatives, I mean. And as they used to say in Silicon Valley in the early 2000s, that's a nice segue. Because now we get to visit a number of research projects that are looking to do just that. Develop alternatives to antibiotics in the world of aquaculture. And be forewarned, they are as diverse as aquaculture itself. So how should we go about this? Rock, paper, scissors? Okay, let's go. Rock, Rock, paper, paper, scissors, scissors, shoot! shoot. Huh, rock beats scissors, you win. So where to first? Okay, uh, nanobubbles. Nano what? Nanobubbles, as in really tiny bubbles. So this project is a collaboration between the City University of Hong Kong, SSR University in Thailand, and the Research Institute for Aquaculture in Vietnam. My name is Sophie St. Hilaire, and I am a veterinary epidemiologist. I work at City University of Hong Kong. So antimicrobial resistance occurs in bacterial populations, uh, including fish pathogens. We have seen some antimicrobial-resistant pathogens of fish here in Hong Kong, and there's certainly reports in other aquaculture industries around the world. The reason that we have antimicrobial resistance is multifactorial. Uh, There's likely pressures from a number of different sources of antibiotics. One of them may be uh, use directly in the aquaculture industry, my name is Ha Teng Dong. I am a fish pathologist. I'm currently working at uh, Suan Sunan Tha Ratchapat University in Thailand. Antibiotics are normally used when disease outbreak, and there's a lot of misuse with antibiotics in Asian aquaculture, when a lot of farmers, when they use antibiotics and they did not know that, it's used for any uh, treatment. It's not for prevention, and some, some farmers use it for prevention. Uh, also, a lot of um, cases that we also experience that uh, uh, they do antibiotics without uh, sufficient diagnostic information. So they didn't know that whether the fish got infected with uh, bacteria or with viruses. So whatever they use antibiotic. So that is the one kind of serious misuse and it can produce more AMR in the future. So. Therefore, I think that uh, the research focused on not only for disease prevention or something to deplay antibiotics, but something to reduce the risk of disease in aquaculture system. For example, like reduce the concentration of pathogens in aquatic system. Um, one of the ways to reduce bacteria in water is to disinfect water. However, if the fish are in the water, which they are in the aquaculture systems, it's sometimes hard to find the right disinfectant that won't hurt the fish. The nanobubble technology could be used while fish are in the water body to disinfect and reduce the amount of bacteria while maintaining fish health. Maybe before we get into the nitty gritty of the project, uh, a very short introduction into what constitutes a nanobubble and how it's able to disinfect water might be useful. So a, a nanobubble is a very, very small bubble, less than 100 nanometers in diameter. Nanobubbles are negatively charged in neutral pH, 
So they do not coalesce together to make larger bubbles. They remain in the water in solution. And so it has special physical characteristics that macro bubbles or larger size bubbles um, don't have. When these bubbles collapse on themselves, they then generate highly reactive hydroxyl free radicals, which is why they are potentially useful for disinfection. We also can incorporate different gases in the nanobubbles. So we can actually put ozone in the nanobubbles and ozone in itself has disinfection properties. So we don't need to use as much ozone if we put it in a nanobubble versus a larger size bubble like an aeration stone or macro bubbles. We make our nanobubbles through a process of hydrodynamic cavitation. We do this by running compressed air and high pressure water through a venturi tube. The change in pressure then results in the formation of bubbles. Nanobubble technology has been researched for a couple of decades, uh, mostly with wastewater treatment. Uh, more recently, nanobubble technology has been explored for uses in aquaculture systems, namely reducing bacteria, reducing algae, bioflock on the sides of um, systems, and also increasing dissolved oxygen. So Sophie mentioned incorporating different gases into the nanobubbles. This was the first step on the journey, so to speak, trying to figure out what gas would potentially provide the best disinfection rates. Uh, yeah, so we were expecting the nanobubbles with just air to start and to see if the bubbles themselves had measurable disinfection properties. We found that at the scale that we needed to disinfect, we couldn't detect that on a regular, consistent basis. So we moved to oxygen, and oxygen actually has an added benefit in that if you, if you have high densities of fish and you add oxygen, oftentimes that reduces their stress. It actually improves the aquaculture system. So even if it didn't have disinfection properties, if it increases oxygen in the water, it does that very effectively. Uh, you don't lose a lot of the oxygen, like it stays in the water. So um, it's a good environment for growing fish. So that was a nice um, finding. And one that we certainly had anecdotal evidence of by fish farmers that were using nanobubbles in their ponds and just reporting that, that, that the growth of the fish was uh, improved. So we confirmed that in the lab. Um, but the disinfection properties of the oxygen nanobubble was not, again, not as effective as what we require when you have a disease outbreak. So when you have a disease outbreak, the pathogen load goes really high. And so if you can only get rid of a tenfold level of bacteria, it's not adequate to reduce or stop an outbreak from happening. So that's when we thought, well, let's try the ozone because we know ozone is, is, is a good disinfectant. It's just ozone can be quite toxic to fish. This technology, um, we believe, allows us to use a, a lower level of ozone. It remains in the water longer at a lower concentration. So it seems to be um, a viable option, at least short term. Uh, we haven't exposed fish really long term to the technology. So um, that's another step that we have to take. But short term, it doesn't seem to have a negative impact on the fish uh, at the level that we would require to have a thousand to 10,000 fold reduction in bacteria, which is pretty good for reducing uh, bacterial loads in the water uh, during an outbreak. So figuring out which gases are best at reducing bacterial loads during an outbreak was the primary aim of this piece of baseline work. But the researchers also discovered something that they hadn't necessarily expected when they exposed fish to the nanobubbles. You know, in our project, we investigated different gases and we found that ozone is work very well for disinfectants. And then we also found that it can disinfect both gram-negative and positive bacteria and relatively safe for the fish in the aquaculture uh, system. And then we also have some evidence that uh, also, nanobubble technologies can uh, reduce mortalities caused by better infections, and they also modulate the immune system to fight against bacteria. We discovered that when the fish is exposed to also nanobubble, 
and there's one vast array of the innate immune genes that uh, are upregulated. So basically, the genes turn on, you know. Uh, we investigated several genes and including stress response genes. And after that, we challenged the fish with bacteria. And we found that uh, the fish fight the bacteria better. So they survive uh, more than the one in, in control group. After the fish were uh, exposed to ozone nanobubble, then we can say that it's like uh, armies. So they are ready to fight with uh, battle pathogens, ready to fight with enemies. Wow, that's pretty cool. So it seems like the nanobubbles has this kind of trifecta effect, removing bacteria, adding oxygen, and stimulating the immune system. But I'm guessing a lot of this work is happening in the lab. Did Sophie mention how they plan to scale things up to find out how the tech would work in larger aquaculture systems? She did. The lab experiments are just the beginning of a series of trials trying to see how the nanobubbles will perform in both pond and recirculating aquaculture systems, each with its own unique set of questions. And then, of course, scaling up for large-scale farming and regulatory issues. So what we're doing is we're testing the technology on bacterial pathogens of fish. Uh, We do that in the lab. Uh, So we've seen a decline in the bacteria when we use uh, nanobubbles, especially ozone nanobubbles, on the bacteria. Once we determine this, then we evaluate that level of nanobubble uh, on fish themselves. We do fish studies under controlled conditions. Uh, Then we look at the nanobubble impact on ponds, so the microbial ecology of ponds and how that changes with the use of nanobubbles. Uh, And then we look at on a larger scale, so pond water in in tanks, and then on a larger scale in natural existing ponds. For the pond culture, where you might be growing species that benefit greatly from the microbiome and the microbial ecology of the pond, we also had this question of whether we could crash the system if we use this technology. So we've been looking at the microbial ecology pre and post nanobubble exposure on a small scale. And what we find is we get a reduction in the bacteria, but we don't get a complete wipeout and it eventually comes back. So we're looking at the genus of the bacteria pre and post. So 16S analysis of the microbial community. And we're looking to see, is there something that's being removed more than others? And what's the rebound bacterial population look like to see if we are skewing um, the bacterial population in the pond by adding these ozone nanobubbles. One option, if we see that that's the case, is we only use the nanobubble technology when a problem is starting. So it's basically a treatment. So we use it when the fish start to show signs of a bacterial problem. We use nanobubble technology with ozone to reduce the level of bacteria in the pond and try to get rid of the pathogenic bacteria, which tends to monopolize during an outbreak. When there's no outbreak, we just switch to oxygen nanobubbles, which would benefit the community and the fish population. The the other thing that's interesting is that when you inject uh, ozone in nanobubbles, the oxygen level in the water increases quite a bit. So we're getting both the benefit of increasing oxygen, dissolved oxygen, and we also get the benefit of the disinfection. We think this technology will be useful in recirculation systems where your bacterial levels can increase. I mean, you have to watch for your biofilter, of course, um, but you can get rid of the ozone before it hits the biofilter. So we think that this type of system will benefit from this technology. And the last step is to look at fish in a natural environment uh, when we apply the nanobubbles. So in a, in a pond situation or a recirculation system where there's high densities of fish and there's high volumes of water. And so what does success look like in this project? Um, I think if we find technology that reduces bacteria in the water column, aquaculture systems, so while the fish are in the water, 
that would be a success, uh, especially if we could get more than a thousand or ten thousand fold reduction in bacterial counts. Um, that would be a success for us. If we can increase dissolved oxygen, I think that's also a success. So I should also add uh, a method that's cost effective for the farmer to do this on a large scale. So all three of those have to be met in order for us to really call this a success. If we find that we can reach one or two of these, um, then we have more work to do to improve the technology, but it's relatively new technology. So as we know, innovations always take a while to really transform the way that we, we culture fish. It'll take some time before the cost comes down and you know, the, the system is um, perfected. So the question, even if we find that this technology works on a small scale, can it be scaled up for aquaculture systems to reduce bacterial um, populations? And can it uh, reduce pathogenic bacteria um, to a level where we don't see the disease outbreaks and we don't need to treat with antibiotics? And as always, there are going to be barriers that need to be overcome before getting there. Fortunately, given that nanobubble machines are already employed in the wastewater treatment industry, in this case, regulatory issues are unlikely to be one of them. But there are other challenges. Oh, um, I think nanobubble technologies has been uh, used for wastewater treatment. And so I, I think therefore it's not, uh, it should not have any major issues with uh, approval regulations because it's already there, you know. So I think to be applied the aquaculture is not uh, a big problem, but the big problem is uh, how to make them to produce a uh, big capacities of the machine that's make it suitable for large scale farming. Yeah, and you know, there's many companies that provide the device and they advertise about the technologies, but it's not easy to prove that the machine is really produce nano bubbles or they produce micro bubble. So they are totally different. So uh, nano bubbles, they can stay for longer in water compared to micro bubble. Um, I, I think uh, currently the price for a nano bubble generator is still quite expensive for farmer. So I hope in the future the manufacturers can down the price and make it more affordable to, to farmers. The other issue is uh, maybe in the future, if uh, it's possible, they can adopt these technologies uh, together with uh, solar cells. So it will reduce a lot of uh, electricity and make it using clean energy. So COVID? Um, yes, COVID. Kind of hard to ignore right now. Well, as a silver lining, it might be spurring innovation in some less expected places. There's a number of steps that have to happen when we use the nanobubble technology. And one of them is that the water has to be relatively clean going through the machine. Um, and so that's allowed us to look at different filtration systems to clean the water in terms of the big, the, the large particles. So we've been looking at different uh, materials to filter the water before it enters the nanobubble generator. And the, with the issues with COVID, we have several engineers at our university that have looked at different materials to incorporate in face masks to uh, clean air. And one of our colleagues at CU has looked at graphene materials to incorporate into the mask. So we've been exploring the use of this material, graphene, to disinfect the water and augment the disinfection properties of the nanobubble generator. So by using some of this novel technology that's incorporated in, in masks, we've been able to create filters for water that actually kills some bacteria. So we can stack that technology with the nanobubble technology. And I think it increases the disinfection properties of the system. <laughs> I love that. Even the nanobubble machines are masking up. I think as we begin the long debrief from this crazy time, we're going to discover all kinds of unintended outcomes of COVID. Many will likely be negative, but hopefully some positive ones too. Okay, interesting fact. Did you know that bacteria like to chat with each other? 
and that that conversation can regulate the expression of some of their genes. I can honestly say that I did not know that. Okay, so when pathogenic bacteria express certain genes during the infection process, like the so-called virulence determinants, the host organisms get sick. The thing is, many of these products also trigger the immune system of the host. So, if bacteria can wait until their numbers are high enough before making a coordinated attack, they can potentially produce enough virulence products to overwhelm the host's defenses. Wow, bacteria are sneakier and much more organized than I thought. But, in order to do this, they need to figure out how many of themselves are around. And they do this using a cell-to-cell communication system known as quorum sensing. It works like this. Bacteria release chemicals called auto-inducers into the environment. The more bacteria there are, the higher the concentration of the auto-inducers floating around. Once the bacteria sense that the concentration has reached a threshold level, the activation or repression of certain genes is triggered. Okay, so if we wanted to control bacterial infections, could we... How do I put this? Jam the signal? Prevent the bacteria from talking to each other so they can't coordinate their attack and cause disease? Exactly, and that's just what our next project is trying to do in the context of shrimp aquaculture. This is a project centered at the Department of Aquaculture at University Putra, Malaysia. Hi, uh, I'm Associate Professor Dr. Natra, and I'm from Faculty of Agriculture, UPN. Uh, I'm the principal investigator of the project uh, Quorum Quenching Strategies to reduce MR in shrimp aquaculture. With this project, we have also collaborators from University Kebangsaan Malaysia, University Islam Adrabangsa, University Malaysia Terengganu, and uh, we also had international collaborators. Swansea University UK, University of Ghent, Belgium, and also Institute Pertanian Bogor, Indonesia. So, uh, shrimp is actually one of the commercially important species in Malaysia. It is also very important sectors for food production and also food security. Of course, in terms of production in Malaysia, uh, most of the challenges are basically it comes from disease outbreak. And in terms of the usage of antibiotics, uh, our group has actually conducted several questionnaires and interviews and most of the farmer uh, basically told us that they are not using antibiotics but then of course it's very hard to get an honest feedback uh, on this antibiotic usage in shrimp farm. I guess that's always going to be a limit of self-reporting surveys. Did they do any studies on AMR levels on shrimp farms? They did, but pinpointing the cause of AMR in a particular location is extremely difficult. So yes, our team did uh, quite a number of surveys in terms of looking at the occurrence of antimicrobial resistance, uh, particularly in shrimp farmers around Malaysia. And we did notice some Weibo species. So Weibo species are among the common uh, pathogens uh, for shrimp disease in aquaculture. And we found that a number of the species are resistant to several antibiotics, including tetracycline, ampicillin, penicillin, and canamycin. And we noticed that most of them are basically resistant to ampicillin. However, it is not surprising because ampicillin was the first generation of antibiotic and basically what we use. Um, it can be that this resistance of this antibiotic it developed uh, over time and it can be the misuse of antibiotic was basically from you know long time ago, but we can only see the effect of the antimicrobial resistance. Now, and then there are also possibility that this antibiotic resistant bacteria actually it didn't come from the antibiotics that are being supplied by the farmer. It can also originate from the water as most of the sampling sites are located near to, to other aquaculture and also agriculture farms. So it's really impossible to really pinpoint the real cost uh, of this antibiotic resistant in in, in a shrimp farm. So we talked about quorum sensing earlier and you mentioned that interrupting this bacterial chatter might be useful. Well, this process has a name, quorum quenching. Sounds very sci-fi. So quorum quenching or quorum quenches, or it is also known as quorum sensing inhibitor, are basically any organism or any compounds that can quench or basically inhibit the signal uh, molecules that are being produced by bacteria. The idea is by quenching the signal molecules, all this behavior that somehow lacked 
to to the pathogenicity of that bacterial pathogen can somehow be inhibited. Okay, yeah, it's, it's because uh, most of the disease outbreak in shrimp aquaculture were caused by the pathogenic Ludo species. And for example, we have the EMS or EPEN outbreak, uh, which leads to huge economic losses to shrimp aquaculture industries. And EPEN are known to be caused by different Vibrios. And we know also that Vibrios, the pathogenicity of Vibrios are known also to be regulated by quantum sensing mechanism. So that is why to counter this uh, pathogenicity, uh, our invention basically contains high quorum quenching properties that could halt the quantum sensing in pathogenic bacteria and reduce the transcription of the virulence genes. For the project, we are basically uh, focusing at three main different quarantine quenching strategies. The first one is on the use of probiotics in the form of feed formulation and also in the form of uh, mature microbiota. Right? And the second one is on the use of natural antibodies while the third one is on the use of synthetic antibodies. Okay, so for this episode, we are just going to focus on the probiotic component of the project. That's Natra's speciality after all. So in simple terms, probiotics are basically microorganisms that when ingested, provide a health benefit. For the probiotic part, the focus is more on microalgae and its associated bacteria. Probiotic can, uh, there can be a lot of mechanism, okay, under the probiotic, uh, can be in the terms of colonization, it can also produce antibiotic-like, okay, uh, properties. Uh. But in our case, uh, it is mostly on silencing the signal molecules. So in order to test for a quorum crunching activity, uh, our lab is having a lot of biosensors that are specifically designed to look at the activity. So these are clear, uh, they are mutants, okay, where we can uh, supply them with a synthetic signal molecules that we can buy from chemical supplier. And from that, uh, we can see whether the organism that we're testing uh, can inhibit the signal. So this somehow uh, shows the ability of quantum quenching. So we screen quite a number of microalgal species. Microalgae are basically uh, used a lot, especially in trim farm because microalgae are known to have all these beneficial polyunsaturated fatty acids. And we noticed that number of microalgae are also having these quorum quenching properties. And other than microalgae, uh, basically selected some of them where we further investigate on the associated uh, probiotic bacteria they are also having quorum quenching properties because we think uh, that microalgae, basically, they cannot live alone. They, they are in symbiotic, they are in consortium with other species. So that's why we would like to have this combination of microalgae and bacteria together for them to become a stronger team, okay? Right. And at the same time, okay, uh, of course, this microalgae and bacteria, they need nutrients for them to grow. So our uh, team have successfully formulated media to basically um, enable this probiotic to grow. And at the same time, we have uh, the other strategies is to incorporate this quarantine quencher with live feed. In our case, a type of live feed known as copepod. Copepod are basically a very nutritious live feed. Our collaborator have successfully mass culture is copper pot that this baby shrimp right they they love this copper pot you can see uh, we have a video where the shrimp uh, really like the copper pot and at the same time the copper pot really love the microalgae that we supply them right so the researchers screen different microalgae and their associated bacteria for their quorum quenching abilities then they figure out how to mass culture the best ones then they get copepods to eat the microalgae so that when the copepods are released as live feed into shrimp culture systems, they essentially deliver the microalgae and all of its quorum quenching abilities right into the shrimp's gut. Exactly, it's kind of like the copepod. It's the tortilla in a taco. 
I should also mention that the copypod encapsulation method is not the only approach the project is exploring to use their quorum quenching microalgae and associated bacteria. They're also exploring using them to seed green water culture systems. This is where you grow shrimp in water that has a high density of microalgal cells. This has a number of advantages including feed provision, water quality improvements, and potentially more stable microbial communities. Okay, so we're always keen to know how research teams plan on taking it to the next level. How they're looking to move this towards a viable product that farmers can use. Well, it turns out that University Putra Malaysia has an incubator program called the Putra Science Park that functions as a center for innovation management and technology transfer. So it seems that they have some great resources to turn to for help on this. In our UST, we have uh, what we call as Putra Science Park. So they are basically a unit that are being developed in, in UPM. Uh, they are capable enough to advise us uh, on the next step. And just a few days ago, uh, we had an interview. Okay, uh, They are being organized uh, under the Science Park, Putra Science Park. Uh, to basically secure a kick, like a kickstart grant to uh, to start uh, a startup company, uh, and from there, um, Putra Science Park also would would offer a lot of program for us to learn more on market strategy and provide support in order to bring our product to market. Okay, so it's actually um, our main issue is. Us, okay, uh, as academician, as a scientist that have re- re- really little knowledge in business and marketing. Very cool that Putra University is providing the kind of support researchers need to turn their ideas into products that have the potential to have real impact in the world. Shall we move on to our next project? I still have so many questions about quorum quenching, but for the sake of keeping this episode under four hours, let's do it. Okay, so the next stop on our tour of Southeast Asia is Vietnam. This project is focusing on the freshwater catfish, Pangasius, a major contributor to global aquaculture production. I wasn't familiar with it before. I did a bit of digging, and the numbers are pretty amazing. Production ballooned from 60,000 tons in 1998 to over 1.2 million tons in 2008. That's like a 20-fold increase. It has sort of leveled off in the last 10 years, but it's a huge amount of fish being grown. And the majority of that is being exported. The last count was over 160 countries. Yeah, talk about a fish with a global distribution, at least in fillet form. It's those nice white fillets that everyone is after. It's the kind of fish product that isn't too fishy, really. A subtle meat that works with any recipe that calls for white fish. But unfortunately, Pangasius culture hasn't escaped the bacterial disease issues associated with intensive culture and the use of antibiotics that follow. But the development of new fish vaccines and novel ways to administer them might just be the help everyone needs. Vaccines are really the MVPs of the decade, helping us stave off everything from global human health threats to antimicrobial resistance in aquaculture. And in pork production too, but we'll save that for next episode. Fish vaccines for Pangasius are the focus of a collaboration between the University of Stirling in Scotland and the Southern Monitoring Centre for Aquaculture, Environment and Epidemics in Vietnam. My name is Le Hong Phu. I am a director of Southern Monitoring Centre for Aquaculture, Environment and Epidemics. So my background is about microbiologists and immunologists. So you know that the aquaculture in Vietnam developed quickly now. So especially we have two main culture species in Vietnam is Bangasius catfish and shrimp. So every year we got high production of Bangasius catfish, about 1.4 million tons every year. Other species, we have the shrimp, also with high production, like around 700,000 tons. Then other species, we have the tilapia and also sea bass, shrimp, copia, and so on. We have two major uh, pathogens of Bangkasit culture, two species of bacteria, that is uh, Aeromonas, Hygrophila than Edgoxilla italorize. So, as you know, in the past, uh, people used antibiotics in the farm, especially in the post culture, uh, because we face with a problem with the bacterial disease. In the past, I think about five to six years, we also found um, the antibiotic resistance in the fish culture, especially in Bangladesh catfish. But recently, uh, many people, they found that um, 
the harmful of antibiotics in our culture then many people they try other alternative product like they try with a herbal extraction and it also they try with other antimicrobial production so we're talking big commercial farms here there certainly are big integrated farms but there are other models as well including small household farms and something you see quite often in poultry farming contract growing normally the small one for the family for example in the family they have just one pond or two pond with a small culture area sometimes something like a, in the nursing pond for example they have a nursing pond is around 1000 2000 square meter in the pro pond they have only one or two pond like around 4000 or 5000 square meter but in the last scale Normally, people have more than three pounds. With the culture area in total, it's around something like from from three or four hectares. We also have the com- commercial company here. We have different culture, like we have the big company, or we have the farmer, but they have the contract with the company. For example, they, the farmer will sign the contract with the company. So the company will provide them with the the seed, the the or the, the, the fish, or the, then after that when they harvest the fish, so the family will collect the fish from their pond. Okay, so this project is looking to develop new vaccines for bacterial diseases in Pangasius culture. But as it turns out, this is sort of round two of this process. Some vaccines do already exist, but uptake has been limited. So the researchers have been surveying farmers to try to understand the barriers to adoption. So in the survey, we try to collect the information about um, how to deal with the disease in the farm, their knowledge about the vaccine. Then we also ask them if they are willing the vaccine later, if the vaccine is available. Then we also ask the farmer about what is the barrier of getting vaccine. We also ask the farmer uh, if they have ever, ever used chemical or any antibiotic in their farm before. Yes. So recently we have commercial vaccine for pangasit culture already in Vietnam, especially for um, prevention of Aromnus hyrophila infection and Equoxula italorize infection in Bangladesh culture. We have commercial vaccine already, but that kind of vaccine is only injection vaccine. So that is the barrier in our culture system here, because with injection vaccine, we have to catch, then we have to inject the fish one by one. By that way, the fish is very stressed. The farmer, they spend a lot of time, uh, then also the labor consumer in catching the fish one by one. The, the farmer, they don't like that way. So in our project, we try to produce immersion vaccine. That's much more convenient than injection vaccine. In our project, we also try to produce bivalent vaccine. It means we can produce one vaccine but can prevent two diseases, two pathogens. Wow, that's pretty epic, a bivalent immersion vaccine. Immersion vaccines make complete sense if you're a fish. I mean, imagine getting your head held underwater while you wait for your annual flu shot. That's not going to do much for keeping your stress levels down. I like that you automatically took the perspective of the fish there. While I was listening to Fook speak, I was imagining how much of a struggle it would be for farmers to catch, handle, and individually inject every single fish. Much better to just deposit the fish in the vaccine, rinse and repeat. But first, you have to develop and test the vaccine. So for the immersion vaccine, first we have to produce the vaccine in the laboratory condition. So how to develop the vaccine? First, we have to collect many different bacterial strains from many years. We have many isolates of aromnathyrophila and etroxylitolorase. So after collecting the isolate, we will do the molecular biology work to um, to select which strand we are going to use for producing the vaccine. 
telling university will develop the protocol for this. Then after that, they will share. Telling uh, will share with us on that protocol. After selecting the isolated fibrosis in a vaccine, so we are going to culture. We have to enrich the bacteria in the appropriate culture medium. Then after that, we going to use the formalin to kill the bacteria because we are going to produce the inactivated vaccine. So that's why there we have to kill them to make sure that all bacteria will die in the vaccine product that we call inactivated vaccine or kill vaccine. First, we have to try with the small scale. If we see any effect, we will do the preliminary experiments about that. So we will try to immerse the fish in the short term. It depends. If we use high dose of vaccine, then we can, we can shorten the time. Then we, we will try, we will standardize that. But uh, we hope that we will find some good results on immersion vaccine, especially for bivalence vaccine for prevention of two disease. Later on, I think later on we will show to the farmer how to use the immersion vaccine. Then they will they will know the how convenient compared to injection vaccine. In our project, we also plan to have the farmer training workshop. In the training workshop, we are going to tell the farmer information about the bacterial disease in Pangasit culture and it also something about how to prevent and treat of the disease and something relates to the vaccination. That information we are going to provide uh, to the farmer in the training workshop. There is one aspect of the project that wasn't mentioned, and that's the idea of robotic vaccination. This really is our sci-fi episode, isn't it? First quorum quenching, now robotic vaccinations for fish. I kid you not. The team's working with a commercial partner that's already developed robotic arm technology for vaccinating salmon. The aim is to adapt the tech for Pangasius, but this requires giving the robotic arm the information it needs to recognize the right spot to vaccinate on the fish. These datasets are generated by image analysis of Pangasius fish as they grow, and they're used to develop an algorithm to guide the arm. And then, onto pilot testing, and ultimately they'll go on to demonstrations to potential early adopters in the industry. Right, so time to move on to the last project we get to touch base with today. Here's a nice simple term for you. Pituitary adenylate cyclase activating polypeptide. Seriously? Please tell me there's an acronym for that. There always is. This one is PACAP. So as you might have caught from the name, PACAP is a polypeptide. So you know DNA, that long genetic code made of just four bases. Yeah, A, C, G, and T. They basically provide the instructions for making proteins, right? Exactly. So each group of three bases is called a codon, and that encodes for specific amino acids, which are basically the building blocks of protein. So a codon of three A's, AAA, gives you the amino acid lysine, for example. When multiple amino acids are linked together into more complex molecules, you're into the territory of peptides. And when the number of amino acids gets above, say, 10 to 15 in your chain, then you're in polypeptide country. So what's so special about this specific polypeptide, PACAP? Well, it has several really useful features if you're looking for an alternative to antibiotics. An international team from the Universities of Waterloo and Prince Edward Island in Canada and the CIGB Institute and Havana University in Cuba are exploring how PACAP can be used to tackle bacterial disease in aquaculture. I'm Dr. Brian Dixon. I'm a professor of biology at the University of Waterloo in Ontario, Canada, and I'm the Canada Research Chair in Fish and Environmental Immunology. Simply put, PACAP is a naturally occurring protein in animals, including aquaculture animals, and it has two specific effects. The first is that it binds directly to the membrane on the outside of the bacteria and punches holes in it so that the bacteria leaks out its internal contents and dies. But PACAP can also bind to very specific proteins on the surface of our cells or our immune cells and activate them. So it, it has a sort of a double effect in, in helping get rid of the bacteria by destroying them directly and helping to activate immune responses. PACAP is part of the natural defense. There are several of these uh, antimicrobial peptides that all bodies produce in response to pathogens. And this is one of them. So it's a natural form of uh, inducing antibacterial activity. 
So PACAP stands for pituitary adenylate cyclase activating peptide. And it, that name reflects the fact that it has several other functions in the body, including uh, intestinal activity and uh, uh, some neural effects. So it has quite wide ranging effects beyond the immune system. Now I've got an image stuck in my head of PACAP peptide punks walking up to bacteria and punching holes in them. Wow, alliteration. Well, now you're definitely going to be stuck with that image. It's their structure that, that gives them their activity. They're usually either very uh, charged, so they're very positively charged along one side uh, because of their shape, or they have these sulfur groups attached to cysteines in their amino acid sequence, and sulfur is highly reactive. So either way, the, the sulfur can bind to the membrane of the bacteria and start the process of punching a hole, disrupting the membrane. Or the positive charges are attracted to the bacterial membrane because it's overall negatively charged. So it's like a, a sorry, an ionic interaction. It's just a, a function of the structure of the antimicrobial peptide that allows it to bind. And then once several of them bind, they, they just gather together and punch a hole, disrupt the membrane. So now it's a pack of pack-up peptide punks teaming up on bacterial cells. How's that for an alliteration? But I guess we're okay with that kind of vandalism when the target is bacteria. Okay. So if PACAP occurs widely in animals, does that mean that this antibiotic alternative can be widely applied to multiple species? It may just be, but you obviously have to start somewhere. And in this case, the project is focusing initially on salmon, tilapia, catfish, and shrimp. But considering how popular these species are, there's already scope for significant impact. Our project deals with uh, controlling antimicrobial resistance in fish and shrimp aquaculture. Our partners are in Cuba, and they grow a lot of a fish called tilapia, uh, a type of catfish and shrimp for consumption. The Cubans have lots of expertise with the the PACAP peptide itself um, and some connections to the shrimp, tilapia and catfish industries. So they've got expertise in, in the species that they grow there. In Canada, because we're largely focused on salmon, so we're taking our techniques in investigating immune responses in fish from salmon and adapting them to the tilapia and the catfish. In fact, the species we're testing in, in Cuba are tilapia and they're grown around the world, uh, particularly in Southeast Asia, uh, but also in, in the Middle East and in fact in Poland. Um, and some are in aquaculture as global as well. So I think if we can get this to work in Cuba and we get some parallels with salmon aquaculture in Canada, it will help a global industry that's worth like $6 billion a year to the global economy. Shrimp have a completely different immune system. They don't have antibodies uh, the way we do, although they do share some of the innate immune mechanisms like the, the amoeboid macrophage cells. PACAP has been shown to have effects in shrimp, and we're really hoping that PACAP will enhance their version of immunity as well. It turns out that not all forms of PACAP act the same way. You can potentially tweak it to improve performance. So in addition to standard forms of PACAP, the team is also looking to test slightly modified versions to see if they offer improved bacterial fighting or immune activating characteristics. So we've been looking at modified versions because it's known that if you change an amino acid or if you modify the, the side group on an amino acid chain, you often get slightly different activities. And for PACAP, they have investigated five different variants that have had various different abilities to interact with the, the host and, and increase immunity. Um, that being said, we've looked at the five variants in our systems, and it turns out that the first one and one with a slightly different amino acid sequence that's not too modified are the best ones, certainly so far in fish. We still have to do the work in shrimp, and it may change there, but the simplest ones seem to be the best ones. So when we're testing these peptides, the first thing that we do is just test them directly against the bacteria. As I said, it can punch holes in the membranes of bacteria and destroy them ideally. So the first thing we do is just mix it with the bacteria and look to see if it actually does that, if it destroys the bacteria and prevents its growth. The second step is to go in vitro with fish cells. So we're getting quite good at growing fish cells in tissue culture dishes. We'll add the, the pack app or the variants onto those cells and then look at the immune activation and see if there is an actual enhancement of the immune response. And quite often we'll do that sometimes by mixing the bacteria in with the cells to see the cells reaction to the bacteria. And then the final stage is to do it with live fish in tanks. So we would um, take the fish and expose them to the pack app, 
look to see if there is an increase in the basal level of immune response, and then challenge the fish with a bacteria uh, and see how well they, they respond, if there's better survival or more intense immune responses in a live fish. And once we've determined all that, then we can uh, figure out doses that we might use in, in, a, in a much larger field trial, which is the final step of our grant that will happen in Cuba. Did Brian just say growing fish cells? Did he mean like growing just some of the cells without the rest of the fish? Yep, he was talking about using tissue cultures of cell lines. Turns out you can keep individual types of cells alive and reproducing indefinitely without the original body they were collected from and well beyond that body's eventual death. These are sometimes called immortalized cell lines, kind of like the Heller cell line. Immortalized cell lines. Now we're moving from the sci-fi genre to straight up fantasy. But uh, what's the Hella cell line? Yeah, Hella, as in H-E for Henrietta and L-A for Lax. Henrietta Lax was an American woman who unwittingly became the source of one of the most important human cell lines in medical research. Her cells, taken during a biopsy for cancer treatment, were placed in a petri dish with some medium by George Gay of John Hopkins University in 1952. It turns out they did quite well and became the first immortalized cell line, capable of renewing itself in artificial culture indefinitely. It's estimated scientists have grown 20 tons of these cells since they were first isolated. The story is also a study in issues of consent and privacy. Lax never gave permission for her cells to be harvested or used for research or even commercial purposes. Family medical records and the genome of the cells were also released into the public domain. Wow, that's really fascinating. You just opened up a really interesting can of medical ethics worms. Oh yeah, but that's a subject for a whole nother podcast though. But back to the fish cell lines and PACA. So a cell line is um, a particular set of cells, say skin cells or cells from the spleen that have been taken out of an animal and we are able to grow them in a plastic dish using media, artificial media with nutrients. They don't always grow. They're not easy to make. But when you get one, they're very, very valuable because you've got an isolated cell type that you can experiment on in isolation. And we try in science not to use live animals where we don't have to. Um, and they're also valuable because you can isolate one particular cell type. So we have cell lines from fish that are epithelial, so like skin cells. We have cell lines from fish that are immune cells. And we're able to isolate the effects of, say, PACAP in inducing different types of immunity by looking at these different cells in isolation. So the value of having cell lines is you can isolate specific effects and see what to look for when you start looking in vivo. Because vertebrate animals are quite complex and there's mixes of different cell types there, it's hard to isolate the effect specifically from a whole tissue, like a whole spleen or a whole kidney. So one unique finding is that the, these antimicrobial peptides are also valuable in antiviral resistance. They're quite well known for helping fight off bacterial infections, but it turns out that they can in some cases inhibit viral replication and induce antiviral responses, which I think makes them even more useful. It all sounds pretty promising, fighting off bacteria and viruses, but how do you regulate a product like this? I mean, it's a naturally occurring peptide, so can you patent it? And how would regulators view it once it gets to the point where you try to get a product registered? The regulatory approval will be the tricky part. Licensing this will require it being treated as a drug. It will have to be treated as a drug because it's an intervention. Even though it's naturally occurring, we're using it as a treatment. And so we'll have to get approval as a, as a drug intervention. So the regulatory process will be quite complicated. And I think it will take several field trials and lots of evidence of its efficacy and also its safety um, to get past that. And I think that that will be the major hurdle before we get to using it as a treatment. And we're just starting to go down that route. The Cuban group has patents on its use as a therapeutic, and, and that was the first step in the process. And so we're just actually getting to the regulatory approval part. I think that these are safe. We haven't seen any negative effects. Because they're natural compounds, they don't have negative effects on the host. You don't have side effects. And because they're proteins, when they get in the environment, they're broken down quite quickly. Um, and the other side effect of antibiotics is that bacteria can develop resistance to them. But because this is just punching a hole in the membrane of the bacteria, it's very hard for them to develop resistance. So, so far, we've seen very few negative effects. Well, we're hopeful that we won't see any in, in the large-scale trials. 
a successful outcome from my perspective would be showing that this antimicrobial peptide can be used to increase survival in an aquaculture setting and prevent diseases from causing economic losses. Uh, and I think also showing that it can replace antibiotics so that we don't have to dump as many antibiotics into the ocean or into freshwater systems to get the same level of survival of a disease outbreak in aquaculture. That's really good news that this alternative to antibiotics isn't really one that will contribute to developing more resistance. Yeah, and maybe that's a great place to end our science fiction-y tour of the underwater world of alternatives to antibiotics. So that means that there's just one more topic for us to cover, one last episode in our four-part series. In the final episode of our series, we'll be looking at Streptococcus suis, a bacterial pathogen found in pigs that can be incredibly deadly, especially for piglets. And humans aren't safe from it either. And because it's so dangerous and its economic impacts on the pig farming industry are so high, it drives a whole lot of antimicrobial use. If scientists can find an alternative way to deal with strep suis, that will be a major win for AMR reduction. For everyone wanting to learn more about the podcast, read the transcript, or get in touch, visit us on the podcast's homepage linked in the show notes. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Also, don't forget to subscribe. Until next time, and thanks for listening.